um, agnostic, I guess, by conviction. My mother, um, also an Aussie, um, she was raised as a Catholic um, by a mother who hardly ever left the house, as far as I knew. She never left her house. Um, and so when I was growing up, I, we, we were bundled up and taken off to church every morning. That's us. Not dressed for church there, though. Um, so, so what we... <laughs> Go on, get the laughter out of the way. <laughs> when we went off to church, um, there were rules in our church. We went to a Catholic church, very strict Catholic church. The things that you could do and you couldn't do. And mostly there were things you couldn't do. Um, you couldn't turn around. You couldn't wriggle. This is for children, of course. You weren't allowed to cough or sniff. I mean, sniffing. For me, I lived the first 18 years of my life, had an operation at 18 with a deviated septum. Now, a deviated septum is basically, the septum is the centre part of your nose, and mine, instead of being straight, was in an S shape, which meant that it was parentally blocked. So to ask a child not to sniff for an hour, I mean, sniffing was my life, okay? So, so I just, I hated going to church. And I tried to explain this to mum, but of course you weren't allowed to talk or ask questions in church either. So it made it very difficult. And I just found that uh, uh, this whole subject of Christianity in the church was really quite boring and uninteresting. And I felt it was like totally irrelevant to my life. I finished my schooling at a Catholic boarding school where church was compulsory. And... Uh, Late in my uh, year 12 year, which was a long time ago now, it was the first year of HSC, it was matric before that, now it's VCE, that gives you some kind of age bracket where I'm at. And uh, two guys decided that they were going to skip church one day. And uh, the kitchen was currently being renovated and they, they had found a, a, an under, a cellar under the kitchen and a separate entrance to it where they could get down and pill for some drinks. So they were after some soft drinks that were stored down there. And uh, they asked around in the dorm beforehand if anybody had a torch and nobody had a torch or no one had a torch they were willing to lend them anyway and so they took a box of matches and what they didn't know that is that there had been a gas leak in the kitchen and the gas being heavier than air had settled into the cellar and so as they looked in through the little manhole and lit the match it was the last thing they ever saw now being a raised a catholic and knowing about the guilt and the father with the big stick and all that sort of stuff we knew why that had happened, because they didn't go to church. They skipped church. And so at that time, I kind of made a vow, be it consciously or unconsciously, that that was it for me. The minute I didn't have to go to church, I wouldn't. And for the next six years, I didn't. I wasn't interested. Um, I finished school. Um, I went two years at uh, university. And then I started um, a job at Dan Nong Drafting Service. Um, the secretary was a born-again Christian. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that was how born-again Christians... See this? This is how born-again Christians... That's, that's how they dressed, okay? And I, ne <laughs> I never wanted anything to do with them. But this lady was a born-again Christian. We used to laugh at her. We used to make fun of her behind her back, of course, because she was a really nice lady. Um, but one day she um, resigned. She was going to get married. And uh, we were doing some work at the time at Dan Nong College and uh, design work, and um, 
the owners of the business asked them if they had anybody doing the secretarial course at the time uh, that might be interested in the job. So we had a few people apply, and this one girl got the job. And guess what? She was born again Christian. Now, I guess um, she was about the same age as me, and we 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 just didn't hit it off. I mean, I couldn't stand her. She was she was kind of I was almost I don't know what the word was, but she just made me feel unsure of myself, unsure of my decisions in life, and. She just seemed so sure about everything that she was doing. Um, and so we didn't hit it off really well at the start, but then we kind of spent um, lunch breaks. We had the same lunch break, so we spent those times together. And over the course of a year or so, um, I kind of warmed to her. And I couldn't work out what was so alluring about this girl. Because when she walked down, we had the, the drafting boards kind of two ways down the middle of the either side of the... Um, room and she would kind of walk down and she just kind of was hypnotic. Just kind of, <laughs> I kind of just hypnotic the way she walked down the middle of those things. Anyway, I needed to know what it was and what I discovered is that she had faith. Um, and if I wanted to get to know her, I needed to follow her where she was going. And unfortunately, that was to church. But by that stage, I was hooked. So I followed her to church. And then I met her parents, who were also Christians. And they were people who, I mean, these weren't the Christians that I had pictured, you know, the, the Coke bottle glasses and the, the skivvy up here and the hairy high pants, all that sort of stuff. They weren't like that. They, were, they lived on a ranch, they broke in horses, and their faith seemed to work for them. I, uh, I sat down one day with her father and I said, so what is a born-again Christian? Which is the perfect question every pastor wants you to, her father was pastor. Um, every, the perfect question that every pastor wants somebody to ask them. And he told me. And I, I decided that I'd better read this Bible that I knew from my childhood, but their, their Bible seemed to be different. So I read through the New Testament and I discovered that our Bibles were the same. The only difference was they were living what it said and I wasn't. And I came to the conclusion at the end of that that it was true, that what the Bible said about Jesus was true. So what I want to look at, look at today is why. Why did I come to that decision? I don't think you can prove Christianity kind of with a mathematical proof or even a philosophical proof, or even scientific. But it's based on evidence, good evidence, historical evidence. The kind of evidence that perhaps you might prepare and give to a a case of law. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's thinkers and feelers. And I'm a little bit of both, but I'm mostly a thinker. And so I need evidence. I'm not the kind of person who's going to take a blind leap of faith. But I am prepared to take a reasonable step of faith if it's based on evidence. And the, the historical evidence I want to look at today is really the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes people say, hang on a minute. Shouldn't you just start with, is there a God? Why do you start on Alpha with, who is Jesus? And for reasons that I'll come to later on, um, we start with Jesus um, because I found myself that it's actually through the life, death, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus that we come to a knowledge of God. So what's the evidence? How do we know, for example, that Jesus even existed? And the answer is there's a great deal of evidence inside 
and outside the New Testament. The Roman historian Tacitus refers to Jesus. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report. So he's referring to the great fire of Rome, you know, when Nero fiddled and Rome burned. He's referring to that. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. The Roman historian Suetonius talked indirectly about him. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he, Claudius, that's the emperor, expelled them from Rome. Then there was the Jewish historian. He was in the first century, Josephus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it's lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. So there's evidence inside and outside the New Testament. Some say, well, you know, the New Testament was written a long time ago. I mean, who's to say it came down to us exactly as it was written? And the answer is we do know quite accurately through a science called textual criticism. And basically, it kind of sums it up like this. From when the earliest thing was written to when we have the earliest copy, the smallest gap between our first, when it was first written and the earliest copy and the larger number of manuscripts that we have, the more the more assured we can be that what we have today is accurate. So I want to show you a little table. Didn't quite come out the way I expected, but anyway. You can see here, there's a whole lot of ancient texts listed here. So for example, you'll see Herodotus and Thucydides were both written in the 5th century BC. And the earliest copy we have of them is AD 900. So there's a 1300 year lapse between when it was first written to the first copy we have, and we have eight copies of each. Tacitus, who we just referred to, there's a thousand year time gap, and we have 20 copies. Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years, nine to 10 copies. Livy's Roman history, a 900 year gap, and 20 copies. When it comes to the New Testament, it was written between 40 and 100 AD. We have manuscript evidence as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by AD 350. And we have 5,309 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin, and 9,300 others. One of the greatest textual critics, F.J.A. Hort, said this, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings, and no secular historian would disagree with that. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who's an expert in this field, sums it up like this. The interval then between the date of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So we know from evidence 
inside and outside the New Testament that Jesus was really here. But who was he? What was he like? We know that he ate. We know that he drank. We know that he sweated. We know that he experienced things that all humans experience. He experienced love. He experienced sorrow. He had a job. He went to work. He went to the toilet, believe it or not. He was a real human being. He was tempted. He suffered bereavement, suffering, loss, torture, and eventually death. So many today would say, of course, that he was a real human being. They have no trouble with that. But they would say that's all he was. He was nothing more. He was a great religious teacher. So, for example, if you've ever seen the Da Vinci Code or read the book of the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown suggesting that Jesus was just a great man. He was a great historical teacher. Albeit he changed the world, but that's all he was. And then you have Bono, the leader singer of U2, who says, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, as strange as it seems. So that's the issue. What evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? Let's look at Matthew Chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's possible to be with someone for a long time and not realise who they are. Nicky Gumbel, who's the person who started this course at Holy Trinity Brompton in England, um, plays squash. And sometimes when he goes to the gym, if there's no one to play squash with, he'll go and push some weights. One day he was pushing weights and there was this big guy, really big guy with him, and he, they kind of started chatting. This guy was pushing really huge weights and Nicky was pushing really little weights. And they started talking together and afterwards they were talking in the change rooms and just to make polite conversation, Nicky said, well, so um, do you play any other sport? <coughs> Apart from weightlifting, he meant. And the guy's name was Paul Ackford. He was an all-England rugby league player. And uh, he assumed that Nicky would know that. So he said, well, yeah, I play a little bit of squash. Nicky plays, oh, I, squ I play squash too. He said, do you, you play any other sports? And he goes, well, yeah, I, I play rugby. Oh, do you play for a team? He said, yeah, I, I play for Harlequins. And Nicky says, oh, Harlequins, they're quite good, aren't they? So I've heard of them. He goes, yes, yeah, this, they're not a bad team. He said, don't they have some people that play for England in that team? He said, yeah, there's five people. He said, have you ever played for England? He said, yeah, I've played for England. He goes, when did you last play for England? He said, two weeks ago during the World Cup. And Nicky said, you're Paul Ackford. He'd been with him all that time and he hadn't realised who he was. And it's possible for that to happen. And the disciples looked at Jesus and they said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the question is, was they right? were they right? What's the evidence for that? There are two parts to the argument really because the first part is who did Jesus think he was? Because if Jesus didn't think he was the son of God or God, incarnate, then it kind of, you know, it doesn't make sense. And some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's true. He didn't go around with a t-shirt saying, I am God. But if we look at some of the things that he taught and said, there's little doubt that he was conscious 
of being a man whose persona, whose personality, whose being was God. So that's the first part of the argument. And secondly, was he right? What's the evidence that supports his claims? So let's look at the first part of the argument. What did he say about himself? And there's three pieces of evidence. Firstly, his teaching centered on himself. Now, most religious teachers, they would say, here is the way to heaven. There's the person to worship. Jesus said, here's the person to worship. Here is the way to heaven. He said, it's through me that you come into relationship with God. We all have, I guess, what you kind of describe as a spiritual hunger. Freud said people are hungry for love. Jung said people are hungry for security. And Adler said people are hungry for significance. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you want that hunger satisfied, come to me. Addiction's a major problem in our society today. Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Many people are depressed, delusioned, in despair, in depression. You're in a dark place. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And for me, that's what I found. Before I was a Christian, it was kind of like I was staggering around in the dark. And the minute I met Jesus, it was like somebody switched the light on. I was kind of afraid of death. I didn't really like to think about it. My mother had a terminal, terminal disease, and it was, it was something that we kind of pushed to the back of our minds. And today it's not even, I mean, I've heard it's not even politically correct to use the word death. I've heard nurses refer to it as negative patient care outcome. Is that true, Cara? No? You've never used that term? But the fact is we die. We all die. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Mother Teresa was asked shortly before she died, was she afraid of death? And she said, how can I be? Dying is going home to God. I've never been afraid. On the contrary, she said, I'm really looking forward to it. I think most people recognise, don't they, that materialism doesn't satisfy in today's society. And people are looking for some kind of spiritual reality. Jesus said, I am the way. People are looking for values on which to base their life. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I think all of us want some ultimate meaning or purpose to our life. And Jesus said, I'm the life. Other people said, you know, the great teacher said, that's the way, that's the truth, that's the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you receive me, he said, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I heard about a five-year-old child who was drawing a picture and the mother came and kind of looked over her shoulder and said, what are you drawing, darling? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the, child, and the mum said, well, don't be silly, darling. Nobody knows what God looks like. And the child said, well, they will do when I finish my picture. <laughs> Second piece of evidence is a kind of indirect piece of evidence. Jesus said a number of things which... Although they weren't direct claims to be God, um, they show that um, he regarded himself as the same position as God. For example, 
when he said to the people, your sins are forgiven. Now, to forgive somebody's sins is something only we can do if we have sinned against that person. But to, but to forgive people's sins when you haven't sinned against them, that's something only God could do. The third piece of evidence, I guess, is his direct claims. Um, if you have your bowls, we'll turn to John chapter 20, verse 26. And this is after the resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 26. Jesus appeared to a group of disciples, uh, but Thomas wasn't there. And uh, when these disciples who were friends of Thomas said to him, Hey, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. Thomas uh, said, Well, I'm not going to believe that until I see it. No, I want to put my... I want to put my fingers in the holes in his hands and I want to put my hand in his side. You know, I'm not going to believe it until I see that. And we pick up the story at the end of verse 26. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas called him God. And Jesus didn't say, hang on a minute, Thomas. That's going a little bit too far. Now, I'm a great religious teacher, but I'm not God. No, he didn't say that. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, you're saying to Thomas, you're a bit slow getting it. All the other people got it first. You were a bit slow. If somebody says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, and you only have time to turn to one verse. God suggests showing them John chapter 10, verse 30. The background is that a claim tantamount to being God was punishable by death under Jewish law, by stoning. And Jesus says this in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, they picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. So that's the first part of the argument. What did Jesus say about himself? And obviously, claims like these need to be tested. There are people all over the world who say they're Elvis Presley, Rian Canada, or you know, a poached egg. So how do we test these claims? Well, Jesus claimed to be the unique Son of God, God made flesh. So there's a whole variety of possibilities, but they basically boil down to three. The first is that it wasn't true. And Jesus knew it wasn't true. In which case he was an imposter or a fraud. The second case, possibility, is that it was true, or sorry, that it was not true, but he didn't realise it, which would make him mad or insane. And the only other logical possibility is that it's true. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the thought of, sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But don't let's come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So what evidence is there to support what he said? Well, I guess the first area you might look at is what did he teach? 
The teaching of Jesus is widely acknowledged to be the greatest teaching that has ever fallen from human lips. We have based our whole Western society on the teaching of Jesus. Love your neighbour as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Turn the other cheek. John Mortimer, who was a creator of Rumpole of the Bailey, is a leading atheist. He's often attacked Christians and still describes himself as an atheist, but he's had a change of heart and he describes himself as a leading member of the Atheists for Christ movement. (laughs) And asked about what brought about this change, he said, seeing the impact on society of a generation that has rejected God and as a result Christian ethics. What is beyond doubt, he writes, is that the Gospels provide a system of ethics to which we must return if we are to avoid social disasters. And the article was headed, even unbelievers should go back to church today. Many of our laws were originally based on Jesus' teaching. We're making progress in every area of science, technology, but nobody has improved upon the teaching of Jesus. They're the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words that you would expect God to speak. Then what about his lifestyle, the things that he did? People say, oh, Christianity is boring. And I used to say that myself. It wouldn't have been boring being with Jesus. Remember the first party he went to? The wine ran out. And he told them, go and get some water, bath water it was, fill up these jugs. And out came Shadow Lafitte, 45 BC. It would have been fun going on a picnic with Jesus. No need to take any food, a couple of fish, a bit of bread. What about going hospital visiting with Jesus? <laughs> 38 years a man had been invalid and Jesus said, pick up your mat, get up and walk. What about going to a funeral with Jesus? Remember one time we went to a funeral? The man had been dead for three or four days. And he said, take the stone away. They said, oh, we can't do that, it'll stink. He's been dead for four days. No, take the stone away. And he came out. He called him out. <coughs> and he came out. And he said, unwrap him and let him go. Not just his miracles, but his, his love for the loveless, for the outcasts of society. He set them free and he still sets people free today. And of course, I suppose ultimately his death, laying down his life for his friends. And, his, and then... The third thing is his character, which has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine said this. says, Jesus, the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western humanity. There was an article in The Spectator a few years ago by Matthew Paris who described himself as an avowed atheist. And his point was this. He said, he said I've got huge respect for Jesus because his life was so radical. It was so inconvenient. He said this, he said, if Jesus hadn't existed, this church most certainly would not have invented him. Look at Jesus' courage. When he was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One of the things said about him in the gospel is that he has done all things beautifully. Dostoevsky described him as infinitely beautiful. Could such a person really be evil or unbalanced? The fourth piece of evidence is the fulfilment of Old Testament 
prophecy. No one else in the history of humanity has ever had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. 29 of them in a single day. It could be suggested, I guess, that he was a clever conman who deliberately set out to meet all those things, but some of those things were beyond his control, where he died, how he was to die, even where he was born. He could have been reading through it and gone, oh, I have to be born, in it's too late. Fifth piece of evidence, by far the most important, is his conquest of death. The physical resurrection from the dead of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And it brings me back to the point where I started. It's why we don't begin with, is there a God? New Testament theologian and uh, the former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, said this. He's, and it's so important because it's, it's quite a difficult sentence, so just listen carefully. He said, the Christian claim is not that Jesus is to be understood in terms of a God whom we already know. It is this. The resurrection of Jesus strongly suggests that the world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of or through the lens of Jesus. So what evidence is there that the resurrection really happened? I'll summarise it under four main headings. And first of all, his absence from the tomb. The locality of the tomb was well known. Many theories have been put forward to explain the fact that Jesus' body was missing from the tomb, uh, but none of them are very convincing. First, I guess it was suggested, this is kind of called the swoon theory, <clears throat> that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that he kind of swooned, and he was taken down, put in the tomb, and when he got into the nice cool tomb, he recovered and eventually moved the two and a half ton stone in front of it and got away. But if you've seen Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, you'll realise how ridiculous that is. If you see the flogging that he underwent, that was enough to kill most men. And Jesus had suffered that first and then was crucified. People didn't, just, didn't survive that. He had a two-ton stone in front of the tomb. Um, and furthermore, there's a, there's a kind of a fascinating piece of evidence. If we turn to uh, John chapter 19, verse 33, It says, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, this is when they were, they were breaking the legs of the thieves who were, who were crucified on either side of him as a way of speeding up the death, a sort of asphyxiation because you couldn't lift yourself up. And they said, when he came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It appears to have been a separation of the clot and the serum. And we now know with our medical technology that that is great evidence that somebody has died. But they didn't know that then. They just wrote down what they saw. Then people have said, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. And then they began a rumour that Jesus had, was resurrected. Leaving aside the fact that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers, um, it's psychologically improbable. I mean, these were guys who'd been with him for these three years. They were devastated. They'd watched their leader be crucified, flogged, crucified, for something that they knew he hadn't done. They would have been depressed, disillusioned. Um, anyway, one of the reasons I guess I became a Christian, because I couldn't believe that the disciples, who many of them went on to be crucified themselves, killed for their beliefs, 
that they would be willing to go through the torture and the, the pain and to die for something that they knew was false. Others have said, well, maybe the authorities took the body, which is ridiculous because if they did, as soon as people said Jesus has risen, they would have gone, no, here he is. They would have produced the body. I mean, look how quickly we were shown Saddam Hussein's sons when they were killed. They wanted us to know that they were dead and that the authorities could have done exactly the same thing. Others have said, well, maybe robbers stole the body. Interesting that there was really only one thing of value in the tomb. And I haven't said that the tomb was empty because it wasn't. Jesus' body wasn't there. But when they got to the tomb, they found the grave clothes. The grave clothes were this one piece of linen that were finally made and they were the only things of any real value that anybody robbing the tomb would have taken. And what they'd done is they kind of collapsed like a cocoon when the butterfly leaves. And the headpiece that had been around Jesus' head was folded and put in a separate place. And it says when they saw that, they believed. Second piece of evidence, first, the absence of Jesus' body from the tomb. Secondly, his presence with the disciples. Jesus appeared uh, to, uh, well, hundreds of people, over 500 people at one time, over a period of about 40 days after his resurrection. And, and other people have said, well, what about hallucination? Well, it's true people do hallucinate. They're normally highly emotional people, um, depressed, they're, uh, yeah, but... It's unlikely that even two people would have the same hallucination. 500 people saw him at one time. And hallucinations are subjective. They don't have any real objective reality. It's kind of like seeing a ghost. But look, look at these appearances. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do many doubts raise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Not many ghosts eat broiled fish. And then the third piece of evidence, I guess, is the immediate impact. There was a group of disciples. They were discouraged. They were disillusioned. And something occurred that totally changed the way that they felt. They went around telling everybody, Jesus is alive. They were out of their skin. We've seen him. And we've got this kind of historical phenomenon of the birth of the church that expanded so rapidly and spread throughout the entire known world at the time. Because of it basically began with a group of fishermen, unlikely people. And now countless mi millions around the world have experienced the risen Christ, people from every ethnicity, every background, every race, every creed have experienced him. And it's a story of this kind of peaceful revolution that has no parallel in the history of the world. And the fourth piece of evidence is Christian experience down through the ages. Countless millions have experienced him. I told you at the beginning that I read the New Testament and I came to the conclusion that it was true. But I still didn't want to become a Christian. Because I thought 
if I become a Christian, my mind, my, my life would kind of become miserable. There'd be so many things I couldn't do from now on. I tried to put it off. I tried to find ways of not becoming a Christian, but eventually I just had to say yes. And at that moment, I, I experienced unconsciously something that I'd been searching for my whole life. And it was kind of the last place in the world that I expected to find it. It dropped, as they good preachers say, from my head to my heart. I understood it, but then I understood it. And I'm, look, I'm far from perfect. I mess up all the time. Just ask my wife. I've got heaps of issues. But I can tell you over the last 24 years of my experience with Jesus, and I've experienced his love and his power, and that convinces me that he's really alive. Sherlock Holmes said this, when you've eliminated the truth, the, uh, sorry, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And I suppose that's what I've been trying to say today. When you look at the claims of Jesus, who he was, the possibilities of being evil or deluded, I think we can dismiss them. When you look at his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection from the dead, those explanations become to say that he was evil or deluded is kind of absurd. It's illogical. And therefore, the point that Sherlock Holmes makes, when you eliminate those things, whatever remains must be the truth. And actually, when you look at those, they lend the, the strongest possible support to Jesus' own consciousness of being a man whose identity was God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, We are faced then with a frightening alternative. The man we are talking about was and is just what he said, or else insane or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither insane nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son to show us what you were like. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. His teaching, Father, the things that he taught us, the way we live our lives because we know, having seen Jesus, who you are. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, as we continue on in the Alpha 10-week course, pray that all these pieces of the puzzle would come together and that a full picture of who Jesus really was would emerge. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a song come to me this morning. It's not the most Christian song in the world. It's called If You Knew Susie. If you knew Susie like I know Susie. If you knew Jesus like I know Jesus, you would want to get to know him better. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, can I encourage you to investigate? Can I encourage you to go on this Alpha course that we're going to run in fourth term? Or if you can't wait, then I encourage you to talk to either myself or Mark this morning about who Jesus is. Because I'd hate for you to walk out of here and not know him. 
I'd hate for you to see all the evidence and write it off and dismiss it because it's true. So that's the first night of Alpha. What would normally happen now is we would get up from our tables and we would get into a group of 12 people and we would discuss what we've just heard. And that's really the part of the night that people look forward to the most because that's when they can get to give their own understanding of Jesus. And we hear heresies and we hear blasphemy and we hear all kinds of stuff that goes on. But the thing is we don't tell people that they're wrong. We let them have the discussion. And when you're in a group of 12 people, a 12 people, all, all, everybody has different opinions. And we say to people on the first night, ask all your stupid questions. I had a guy once who had been in the church for 10 years or more and asked me, was Jesus really born from a virgin? Now show me that in the Bible. And he could never ask that to anybody else, but the atmosphere at Alpha, this kind of non-judgmental atmosphere where you can ask any question you want, he was free to ask that. And once he got his answer, he was fine, and he moved forward with his Christian life. So what I want to encourage you to do is, as I said before, build a relationship with people. Spend the time over these next few months to get to know people. Everybody, every one of us knows somebody who needs Jesus. We know we need him. And this is the perfect opportunity to be able to reach out into this community, particularly the community of officer. But it, your friends don't have to come from officer. They can come from anywhere, family, friends, people who don't know him. And just say, come to a non-threatening atmosphere where you can ask all the questions you've ever wanted to ask. So I thank you for listening this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Elisa's already got more, more than three people lined up to bring to the offer course, so she'll be champing at the bit to get, to get to fourth term. So thanks, guys. We've had the meal. We've had that. We're going we're gonna to skip the discussion point this morning because time is getting on. But um, have a coffee, have a little bit more morning tea, and uh, enjoy each other's fellowship.